This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Thursday, November 15th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Just when you thought Nancy Pelosi had grabbed back the gavel... Here comes Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton. And Moulton, who's a decorated war veteran and a Harvard MBA and a young man on the rise, he raises not his own hand. Oh, no. He knows to demonstrate good allyship. I I am personally uh, very close with Marsha Fudge of Ohio. She's my mentor. When I came to Congress, I looked around. I asked dozens of people, who could I use as a mentor? Who is someone who is widely respected, who is wise, who is intelligent, who can give me advice? And person after person said Marsha Fudge. She is the kind of new leader that we need in this party. She's incredible. She's amazing. She's from Ohio. She's in- Wow, what a resume. From Ohio, you say? How many people outside the Dayton, Cincinnati, Cleveland, or Columbus metro areas can say that? But CNN wasn't simply satisfied to take that stellar resume at face value. But are you saying that people don't respect Nancy Pelosi? What's your beef with Nancy Pelosi? Look, this isn't just about Nancy Pelosi. I mean, I I understand in her 30 years in Congress, she has accomplished a lot for the Democratic Party, and no one's taking that away from her. Oh, it's not a beef with Pelosi. It's just a taste for fudge. Dude's got no grudge, just loves him some fudge. All right. This may be not exciting enough to you. I'll gin it up with some fun headlines. Rep Moulton is Bolton. Don't get too cozy with Pelosi. Delivers the fudge nudge. Marsha Fudge, former leader of the Congressional Black Caucus, 66 years old, five-term member of Congress. I can't really get that excited about either side of this showdown. I don't begrudge Fudge, but I think the infighting will thrill Matt Drudge. Because when a minority of the majority opposes the majority, that usually causes problems. Look at the Freedom Caucus. It weakens whoever the speaker is or becomes. And is Nancy Pelosi so bad? Don't ask a Republican. Ask a Democrat. Ask maybe a Democrat who just won the election. There is one factor that recommends Marsha Fudge. And it is that whoever the Democratic Speaker of the House will be, that person will be demonized. They'll be demonized in fundraising appeals on the Fox News channel and in scary, scary commercials. But I think if that person's name is Marsha Fudge, doesn't it kind of take the sting out of the charge? Washington fat cat Democrats want to raise your taxes. Like Chuck Schumer. And the despicable Marsha Fudge. Tell Marsha Fudge to go back to her Keebler tree and keep stirring warm, welcoming pots of delicious treats. Ah, screw it. It's like taking out a negative ad against Teddy Ruxpin. Screw you, Fudge, you adorably named, though actually highly competent legislator from Ohio. On the show today, we shall take you to another parliament across the sea where another strong female leader faces down defections from her own base. 
There is no fudge in play here. Oh, no. We're talking about... Prime Minister. We're talking about... Prime Minister. Who? Prime Minister. The Prime Minister. Yes, Theresa May. Brexit. But first, if you think Democratic leadership is a cult of personality, if you think the Democrats have a confused brand, I give you Nexium. Nexium is a cult that took members' money, freedom, self-worth, and actually branded them, literally branded them, with the founder's initials. Luckily, I can assert all that as long as I say this, allegedly. The CBC recently concluded a compelling podcast called Uncover Escaping Nexium. The host of that podcast and a former Nexium member join me up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In 1998, the defendant, Keith Rainier, also known as Vanguard, founded Executive Success Programs, ESP, a series of workshops designed, according to its promotional literature, to, quote, actualize human potential. In or about 2003, Rainier founded an organization called Nexium on its website, described as a professional business providing educational tools, coaching and trainings to corporations and people from all walks of life. That is verbatim from the charging document that the U.S government has filed against Rainier, whose trial begins in a few months, a few hundred feet from where I am now talking to you. And it's not just me talking to you. It's Joshua Block, who is the reporter behind the podcast Uncover Escaping Nexium. And in a little while, we'll be joined by Susan Dones, who was a member and is a character in the documentary. Josh, hello. Thanks hello. for coming on. Tell me about Sarah, who you knew as a kid, and then you caught up with and found out that she was involved in this thing. Right. So I, I grew up with Sarah. I hadn't seen her in about 15 years, but I, I kind of knew that she had been involved, was involved in some bizarre self-help group. Didn't really know the extent of it. I ran into her last year and she says to me, I've just left a cult. Yeah. Uh, and it had literally had just left two months before and I've been branded on my pelvis with the uh, initials of the group's leader, Keith Ranieri. Yeah. So this is what was going on in her life. I think that's what she was telling everyone at the time. And was hard to keep my jaw off the ground. Like it, it was incredible to hear, and her story was that for you know twelve years she was part of this organization, and in fact she was their star recruiter. She mm -hmm. recruited. She was responsible for two thousand people coming into the organization. She was very, very good at it. And she yeah. opened their Vancouver Center. It's structured like a multi-level marketing company. So she was making commissions off the people that she recruited uh, into the organization. And when it was going well, she was making you know, $20,000 a month. Now, we I read the charging document. So the public face of Nexium is sort of self-helpy, sort of business uh, resource. That's right. So they, they run this executive success program, personal growth, professional development. People come, they pay thousands of dollars for uh, self-improvement workshops. Uh, 16,000 people 
uh, is the number that Nexium has talked about in terms of people that have taken their course, that have mm-hmm. had some kind of interaction with Nexium, And that's the kind of public-facing side of the organization. And the vast majority of people that interact with Nexium experience it that way. They wouldn't necessarily ever meet uh, Keith Ranieri, who lives in near Albany, New York, or any of the other Nexium leaders, unless you climb higher in the organization. Yeah. The number of people that were part of the closer-knit community of Nexium members that were mostly living in Albany is in the several hundred. And so when would one first start getting inklings that what they're putting in their brochures isn't necessarily the real story of this organization? It's hard to know. Like for Sarah's account for many years, she didn't know that Keith Ranieri allegedly had this harem of women that he was with. She thought he was a celibate and a renunciate. And um, so it only, you know, people really operated in silos in a lot of ways and didn't understand the full extent of what was going on. Yeah. And Um, as part of the charging document, Ranieri has maintained a rotating group of 15 to 20 women with whom he maintained sexual relationships. And then a secret society was developed within Nexium called DOS or The Vow that works as a pyramid with levels of slaves headed by masters. So the genius of this guy, Keith Ranieri, who claims to be one of the great geniuses of the world, is that he creates a self-help organization which really does help the self, but the method it does that also serves to inoculate the questioning that should go on. So essentially, he's creating himself, he's setting himself as a kind of a god. And it, and it works. I mean, people, lots of people bought into this. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people bought into it. They, they, the very first day, you, they, they throw a bunch of bizarre stuff at you. To kind of, and, and some people say it is to weed out the people that won't be open yeah. to what is going to come next. So that, that's when you learn all the rules and rituals and the handshakes and the bowing and the thanking Vanguard. So I would say, you know, there's a whole swath of society that would not take these courses and would, yeah. you know, all like kinds of red flags. We'll do that thing that's where right. they say you're not open to suggestions. <laughs> right, get off the stage. Yeah. What's the master-slave relationship? How's that work? How's that work for Ranieri? The secret women's group was set up as a master-slave relationship, and it was pitched to Sarah as a form of self-empowerment. It was a way of taking her personal growth to the next level. There is a, a strong you know, strain of misogyny that runs through this organization, and part of it is that women lack character and discipline in the same way that men do. Uh, so when Sarah's approached and said, you know, women need their own group, we need to take our, our self-improvement to the next level— we need something with more structure, with with more rigor. Uh, this secret women's group can provide that to you, and it's set up as a master slave relationship. You you hand over collateral to get into the group in the form of of nude photos, something and embarrassing to yourself, exactly. If it got out. Um, now, the FBI says at the top of this whole master slave setup, essentially a pyramid. Keith Ranieri was at the top of it, and he had set it up to exert control over all these women below yeah. him. Keith Ranieri's lawyer will give you give a totally different account where he says, "No, these are you know consenting adults, enthusiastic participants in 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 the program, and uh, there was nothing really manipulative going on. It's edgy and it's maybe strange to the outside eye, but." But but nothing sort of illegal is happening yeah. here. Yeah, and like a religion and what is a, a, a cult, if not a religion that was invented yesterday, you know, there's this element of prostrating yourself before and humbling yourself before the tenets of the religion. Uh, it's been going on for thousands of years. And then the other part of it was, how do you get out of these things? I mean, running into Sarah, she could just left and 
as I talked to her, I discovered that leaving is not an easy thing. Not only is leaving not easy, but she was intent on taking it down. Yeah. And we got, to, we had the, you know, we had access at that moment to really watch this whole thing unravel in real time. And, and was she the hinge? Was she the the impetus for this uh, this fact that he's now, Keith Raniere is now sitting in a jail cell not far from here? It seems that way. I mean, there were a series of people before her who left the organization, who raised the alarm, who went to the media or went to the authorities, but nothing ever came of it in terms of an investigation into Nexium. The FBI, in their indictment, they do cite the the New York Times article that that profile Sarah that has a picture of Sarah on you know that was on the front page of of the brand. They cite that article as one of the reasons they launched an investigation. So it seems clear that that it was a key piece key reason that Keith Raniere ended up getting arrested. Where did the reporting for that article uh, occur within your process of reporting the story? Well, when I ran into Sarah in August, she had spoken with the New York Times, but they hadn't come out with with the story yet. It was about two months later that they published that article. And in the podcast, you know, I I spoke to Sarah the morning that that New York Times article came out, and it was a huge day. Yeah. But no one thought that he would be arrested. Yeah. He's maintaining his innocence. Uh, he's defending himself. And we think that the uh, justice system will, will ultimately vindicate him. Sir, can we get your first and last name and spelling, please? Sure, it's Mark, M-A-R-C. On March 26, 2018, Keith Raniere was arrested at an expensive villa in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, and transported to Brooklyn, New York. He was charged with sex trafficking, sex trafficking conspiracy, and conspiracy to commit forced labor. The FBI would later add more charges, including racketeering conspiracy, claiming Keith had been running a criminal enterprise that coerced and manipulated people to enrich himself. And as you heard his lawyer say, he has pleaded not guilty. The most interesting episode, well, it wouldn't have been so interesting if you hadn't set it up so expertly, but that interview with Ranieri's lawyer was great. And most of the time, you say, well, why would a lawyer want to argue it in the press? But I understood, and I would hire this guy if I was uh, charged with something. And beyond wanting to hire the guy and saying, oh, he has, you know, a skillful patter, he did make some good arguments that made me wonder if if all these charges are going to stick. Did he do that to you? I definitely walked away from the interview realizing this, it's certainly not a slam dunk. Yeah. And certainly, and I, and, and I already, you know, we already understand with everything that's happening with the Me Too movement and the frustration that, that uh, you know, alleged victims of sexual assault have trying to, to win these things in court. On those charges, it's very tough. You come down to he said, she said. You know, his arguments about the fact that these are consenting women that have agreed and enthusiastically participated in this organization for years and years, suddenly turning around and saying, no, 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 something else is going on. You recognize that that they have a big hill to climb in order to win their case uh, in terms of the sex trafficking and sex trafficking conspiracy. And I agree that his approach to it was not to be a bulldog. I mean, mm-hmm. he made his argument in uh, a charming way and and you know laid it out um, without getting superheated. So so I, I I was certainly taken by the fact that uh, that the trial is going to be really interesting. Which of his arguments do you think was the l- most inadequate or the toughest for Ranieri to eventually explain away? Which of the which of the sex trafficking arguments do you think that the lawyer did uh, the worst job of trying to explain away? I mean, I didn't really hear an adequate response to the evidence that the FBI has present, presented so far, which is electronic messages, text messages, emails that seem to put 
Ranieri at the top of DOS that yep. seemed to suggest that he had masterminded uh, this secret women's group and made himself the grand master of it. And I didn't really hear what his response to that mm-hmm. was. Right. The lawyer was saying things like, look, I could show you a bunch of text messages where this guy has women falling all over him doesn't really get to the point you're laying out. Exactly. Yeah. And what about the financial charges? You know, I, I don't... I don't know. Like the, the issue is that so far the FBI has not presented and, and the prosecution has not presented their full case. So we don't know all the evidence they have. Right. Uh, the, FB, the FBI and the prosecution are arguing that, that essentially they're going after them for racketeering conspiracy, saying this is a criminal enterprise. They were engaged in a legal activity to, to, to make money and to earn power. Uh, we don't know yet what all the evidence they're going to present is. And so it, it's hard to know where we were kind of the conversations happening in the dark. And now let's bring in for a second someone who was there uh, during much of this, Susan Dones, who is a character in the documentary. Hello, Susan. Yep, thanks. My question to you, Susan, do you think this was a sex cult? Uh, that was his motivation? Or do you think this was a way to make money and the sex was just a byproduct or the sex was a means of manipulation? What was the basis? What was, you know, the fundamental motivation for Keith Ranieri? Well, I think it was both. I think for him, it was money and it was about sex. Um, you know, I've talked to people who were involved in his his prior company, CBI, and he was just a sexual then. You know, he has always groomed women so that he could have multiple sexual partners based on the history that I've learned about. And so I don't think Nexium in itself was a sex cult. I think that's the sizzle. That's what a lot of media outlets want to focus on is they want to focus on the actresses that were involved or the actors that were involved in the sex. But it runs so much deeper than that. They were involved in illegal activities that I refuse to be a part of. One was tax evasion. One was bringing cash across the Mexican border. And then when you bring large amounts of cash into any company, you have to launder it. And then when people start to suspect that something's not right, then he would send his minions, his frontline people out to manipulate that person into compliance. And if they couldn't, then what they would just continue to do is emotionally abuse that person until the person left. So I think for Keith, it was about having multiple sexual partners, but he also liked to manipulate people who had money. And one of the issues that I think he has is he has a gambling addiction. Yeah, and and a gambling addiction is actually very in keeping with people who think they are the smartest person in the room, if not the world. Um, what kind of rebuilding have you had to do? Have you had to see psychologists or psychiatrists? Has it hurt your professional reputation, familial reputations? Because it seems like you were sucked in less than many others, like you saw this right away, but mm-hmm. still did your association with Nexium take a toll? Yeah, well, all of those things. I mean, financially, it, it destroyed me. I had to file for bankruptcy, which was a very difficult decision for me to do because I was raised that you pay your debts. Yeah. You know, but I, there was just no way. And I spent, I spent weeks trying to figure out how, how to dig myself out of that. And finally it was just kind of like, you know, it's like you have to call uncle and say, okay, you know, I'm going to bankruptcy court and knowing that I was going to bankruptcy court next year, that's their favorite venue to come in and sue people. And that's what they did is they came in as 
an adversary to my bankruptcy court and sued me in bankruptcy court and had like 230 charges that they said that I did. And I had to defend all of that. And I couldn't afford an attorney. So I had to do that pro se, you know, which I learned a lot about the law very quickly, (laughs) you know, and I knew they were lying. And so I was able to point out all of their lies. And then I had people who had been through bankruptcy court with them in the past who we all worked together and said, this is Nexium's bankruptcy proceeding playbook, you know, and this is how you get through it without an attorney. So we figured that out and would share that with other people if that happened in the future. Then I realized that I had been emotionally drugged through the mud. And so I started going to therapy. And to this day, I still go to therapy every other week. Yeah. Um, Do you know if you will be testifying at this trial? That I don't know. I have been contacted, but I don't know if I'll actually be on the stand testifying. You know, I left in 2009, so there is a statute of limitations to certain things. You know, I, I don't know if I'll be one of the witnesses, but if they want me, I will be there. Susan Tones was a member of Nexium is in the documentary Uncover Escaping Nexium and uh, has done just that. Thank you for your time, Susan. Oh, you're so welcome. It would seem to me, and maybe I could ask you, Josh, that the trial, you, you have potentially hundreds of witnesses. They're either still in the cult, if you believe it's the cult, or they've defected and can uh, offer some prosecution evidence. What's it going to be? Well, we, I mean, the FBI talks about 15 Jane Doe's. Yeah. Uh, around 15 Jane Doe's who have provided testimony uh, uh, that, you know, support the allegations against Keith. Keith Ranieri's lawyer said that there are a hundred women that are continue to be in DOS that are part of it and that yeah. he was confident that they would come forward and tell a very different story about what DOS was. Um, again, we're waiting to find out how this actually will play out in the courtroom, how many of people on both sides are going to come forward and tell their story and how different those stories are going to be. Joshua Block is the reporter behind the CBC podcast. We should plug the CBC. Uncover Escaping Nexium. Thanks so much, Josh. Thank you. And now the spiel. We got some good news, bad news out of the UK. Here we go. This woeful ignorance by a person in high office is disturbing to so many people. The good news is that Jeremy Corbyn was not talking about Donald Trump. The bad news for British Prime Minister Theresa May is he was talking about her and this criticism is all about Brexit. Brexit seems like an impossible task given the parameters at play. The British people voted to leave the European Union because they didn't want the influx of people, but they would like to continue the influx and especially the outflow of goods. The thing about a trade partnership is that you actually have a partner. And the EU was never going to let Theresa May and the Tories leave on their terms, which, to be clear, weren't always clear and weren't always cogent. The Brexit vote was a national outpouring of patriotism plus protectionism plus a tinge of backward nationalism. And this, of course, once the vote was delivered, led to the actual task of putting some plans on paper. And as soon as that happened, the casualties mounted. Back 
A few months ago, Boris Johnson left May's government after the so-called Checkers Plan. That was in May, the month, not the prime minister. Checkers is the country house of the prime minister. Checkers is also a much simpler game than what is demanded of Brexit. So the government soldiered on with no good options. They knew they'd have to put longer plans to paper. And when they did, the shite hit the fan. Once again, promises and sound bites gave way to tangible plans and the casualties inevitably mounted. On the BBC, Tim Montgomery, conservative pundit and Theresa May critic, called out fellow conservatives who ever expected anything better than what he considers to be this bad deal before them. If there is in the Tory Brexiteers' minds that this is a dog's breakfast, few mm. people deserve to eat that dog's breakfast as much as Eurosceptic MP. You are as I was- few deserve that dog breakfast as Eurosceptic MPs. Now, I want to be clear, about 10 or 12 years ago, a dog's breakfast was probably an above-average meal in London. But recently, there's just been a culinary explosion, thanks in large part, to European talent and the influence of Europeans. So now the dog's breakfast is actually worse than the local puddings. Still, there have been defections. The Brexit minister is gone. Dominic Rabb, secretary of Brexit, quit. Who could have seen that coming? The guy's got exit right in the name. By the way, the last Brexit secretary also quit. Can a government Brexit if they have no minister of Brexit? Theresa May thinks so. She says yes. She does so even in the face of polling that show a majority of Brits now wish to stay in the European Union. Then again, polling showed that they wanted to stay in the European Union before the actual Brexit vote took place. May faced down doubters in the opposition party, doubters in her own party, doubters probably in her own cabinet during a three-hour session in Parliament where she took all questions. Here... She was questioned by the Right Honorable MP from Wellingsboro, a Eurosceptic and professor of a very preapic name. Mr. Peter Bone. Um, Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Is the Prime Minister aware that if the media reports about the EU agreement are in any way accurate, you are not delivering the Brexit people voted for and today you will lose the support of many conservative MPs and millions of voters across the country. The Prime Minister reaffirmed that yes it is Brexit and yes it's going forward. We will not rerun the referendum. We will not renege on the decision of the British people. We will leave the customs union, we will leave the common fisheries policy, we will leave the common agricultural policy and we will take back control of our money, laws and borders. We will deliver Brexit and the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union on the 29th of March 2019. Now, not all of the three hours of questions were about Brexit. Online crossbow sales actually came up. But the country is being roiled, and May's tenure might be tied to this impossible-seeming task. Who knows? By the time you hear this, if you're listening to it tomorrow, there might be a vote of no confidence for Theresa May, which is fitting given that she was given a task of no possibility. She is being asked to deliver on the will of the voters without incurring the woe of the voters, or her party, or the opposition. If there's anyone who could walk this high wire without stumbling, well, Theresa May. 
And that's it for today's show. Just producers Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader think the dog's breakfast idiom is just the cat's pajamas, the bee's knees, the wombat's top hat, the anteater space heater. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, wants you to know that when leaving the house, please be sure to fully unplug your anteater heater. You never know when one of those can cause the whole house to burn down and all the ants in it. The gist. If Marsha Fudge is named next speaker, perhaps his whip, the Dems could name Representative Scooter McPuppy Breath. From Indiana's first congressional district, Scooter McPuppy Breath represents the real working men and women of the Midwest. And by changing his name from Pete Visklowski, Scooter McPuppy Breath demonstrates the vision and competence that the people of America can count on. Paid for by the committee to elect Scooter McPuppy Breath. Sit, Scooter, sit. Woof. Good dog. Peru, 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 and thanks for listening.